get into our sermon here this morning. And uh, this morning, as uh, we've already seen, marks the first Sunday of Advent. And uh, Advent is a season of waiting in the Christian year that anticipates the birth of Jesus at Christmas. And in many ways, uh, what what Lent is to Easter, so also Advent is to Christmas. Of course, Advent is filled with a lot more warm fuzzies than Lent uh, often is. But the point is that both Advent and Lent are seasons of anticipation and waiting, seasons of preparation that lead up to really the lead up to the two highest and holiest days of the Christian year, Christmas and Easter. And in our, our entire salvation, the entire gospel story hangs on these two uh, days of the year, the birth of Christ, the entry of God into the world, and then the, the weeks of Holy Week or the week of Holy Week leading up to Easter and ultimately to the resurrection of Christ from the dead and his victory uh, over death. And, and the whole Christian story hangs on these two days. There's actually a third day that is the fulfillment in many ways of these two days, but that's down the road yet. We haven't got that far in our story. So you have to wait till next year to find out what that third day is if you don't know already. But in any case, speaking of the story of the Bible, back in January, we began our sermon series, All Things New, the story of the Bible and the healing of the world. And so if you've been with us, then you know that for this past year, we've been working our way chronologically through the single narrative of Scripture, seeing how God has been working to redeem and to heal the world through his son, Jesus Christ. And when we began the sermon series back in January, we kind of mapped out the timing, all of it, and I timed it intentionally to coincide uh, with Advent so that Jesus would be showing up in the story right when we got to Christmas times. And even the, the text that we chose for missions month that we've had these past four weeks coincided with the sermon series. And so now this morning, at long last, Jesus is finally about to show up. Now, I know that some of you are, are new to Calvary. You haven't been tracking along with us in the sermon series. And for others, it's been challenging to stay active week after week uh, in the live stream for a number of different reasons. And so whether you've been uh, regularly engaged in the series this whole year uh, or whether you're new uh, to the sermon series, either way, it's, it's, it's a long story, the Bible story. And so I don't blame anyone for losing the thread a little bit about the whole narrative arc. So I'm going to do something a little bit different this morning uh, than I would typically do. I often kind of give a little bit of a review to get, a, get us back up to speed. But what I'm going to do this morning is I'm going to go all the way back to the very beginning of our sermon series, and I'm going to divide our sermon into half. So half of our sermon this morning is going to be a review that goes all the way from the beginning Genesis up to Malachi, where we are this morning. And the second half of the sermon is going to be looking at Malachi in the spirit of Advent as it prepares us for the coming of the Lord. The aim of Malachi's prophecy, as we'll see in a moment, was to prepare people for the Lord's arrival. And I want to help us do that this morning as we anticipate the Lord's arrival at Christmas. 
So first, all the way back to the very beginning of our sermon series, back to the beginning of the story of the Bible, to this first chapter of the Bible, as it were, that we've been calling the chapter of creation. All the way back to the very beginning of Genesis chapter 1, we saw the creation of the world in Genesis chapter 1, and we noted that the world was made very good. God made a good and a beautiful world. And we saw in Genesis 2, the creation of Eden as kind of the garden sanctuary, the temple, the, the place where God would come and meet with his world. And Adam and Eve, the first pair of human beings, were created to dwell in this Eden, this garden sanctuary, and they were to serve God as priests, kings, and queens of the world, taking in the breath of God and then breathing the breath of God out into creation, blessing the whole of creation with the life of God. But then we get to Genesis 3 so early on in the story, and we already hit the crisis of the narrative, and we read about the assault of the adversary and the dethroning of humanity. Humanity had been created as priests, kings, and queens of the world to mediate the life of God to the world, but Satan comes and he wants the world's throne for himself. And so he tricks Adam and Eve, he deceives them into to disobeying God, and in disobeying God, they cut themselves off from the life of God. They turn away from God, and in turning away from God, in turn, they are removed from God's presence. They are kicked out of the garden temple. They are defrocked as the priests, kings, and queens. They are cut off from the life of God, and death becomes the destiny of Adam and Eve. And along with them, so too death becomes the destiny of the entire world that depended upon them to mediate the life of God. Satan takes up the world's throne as his own, and now the world is run under the tyranny of the dark Lord Satan. But in the face of this reversal, still in Genesis 3, right after it happens, God promises that a deliverer will one day arise from humanity, will be born of the woman who would overthrow the serpent's tyranny and would reclaim the world's throne for humanity. Human beings will once again be returned to Eden, as it were, and once again reestablished as the priest, kings, and queens of the world. Life will come again to the world through humanity. And so the whole of Scripture, from Genesis chapter 3 all the way up to where we are currently in our story in Malachi, the whole of Scripture has been a telling of how God is bringing life back into the world through this promised child of Eve, this promised son of Eve. But Genesis 4, 5, 6, and on, the promise hangs unfulfilled. And the world under Satan's tyranny progresses from bad to worse. Violence and death and evil so permeate the world that by the time we get to Genesis chapter 6, Things have gotten so bad. The violence is so filled the world that God eventually has to send a great flood to destroy the world, to destroy all life, to unmake the world as it were. It's an act of divine judgment. It's a divine act of decreation. When Genesis 1 opens up, the world is just all watery chaos. But by the time we get done with the flood, that's all the world is now back to water, watery chaos. 
And God begins again with the family of Noah, which takes us then to the age of the patriarchs. So we get to Genesis 12 and the age of the patriarchs, and we read about the calling of Abraham, this man of great faith, and how his family is chosen as the Jewish people, and how through them will come this blessing to the whole world, this promise that was given to Eve that one of her sons, a descendant, would arise from her line that would overthrow the tyranny of Satan has now been passed from Eve to Abraham. This promised son will come from Abraham's family. Abraham has promised that through him will come this deliverer and through this deliverer will come the restoration of the world. Well, this promise that's passed to Abraham is then passed from Abraham to his son, Isaac, and then from his son, Isaac, to his son, Jacob. Jacob has 12 troubled sons through four unhappy wives, and his is a family full of strife and full of division and rivalry. And Jacob's older sons from the less loved wife, they do not hate, they hate rather, and do not love the, the sons, the younger sons from the more loved wife of Jacob. And so they set out this great rivalry between them. And Judah, one of the lesser loved sons, overthrows Joseph, the favorite youngest son. And together, Judah and his brothers sell Joseph down into slavery in Egypt. And then remarkably, Judah emerges as the unexpected hero of the Joseph story. In a dramatic turn of events, Judah offers his life as a ransom to repay the harm that he had caused to Joseph. And as a consequence of this great act of sacrifice, to him, the promise is passed. The promised son of Eve that was going to, that will arrive uh, through Abraham, through Isaac, through Jacob is now given, this promise is given to Judah as well. Well, the Abrahamic family relocates uh, out of the land of Canaan where they were down into the land of Egypt where they're going to live for 400 years and then God promises to bring them back to the land of Canaan. And at first things go well, but then things begin to take a bad turn. They uh, eventually are subjected to slavery and to forced infanticide and their cries and their laments go up to heaven and God himself hears their cries and he comes down and remembers his people. He raises up the prophet Moses to deliver them from the tyranny of Pharaoh and the oppression of the Egyptians. And with the arrival of Moses, we then move into the age or to the chapter of the law. And now here in this age of the law, as it begins, as Moses shows up, this great lawgiver, he brings with him the great and awful plagues of God upon Pharaoh and Egypt. And the last of these plagues, in the last great plague, the people are delivered in the dark of night through the death of the Passover lamb. And the death of that Passover lamb in the dark of night prefigures a future dark night when the wrath of God would again pass over his people because of the sacrifice of a lamb. 
Well, sure enough, the grip of Pharaoh is broken. The people cross through the Red Sea, which is a prefiguring of baptism. Then they eat the miraculous bread in the wilderness and they drink the supernatural water from the rock, prefiguring communion. And then God comes down to visit his people on Mount Sinai, where he gives them the law, the covenant, And this law, this covenant that comes down out of heaven, that is to guide the people, this prefigures the gift of the Holy Spirit. And the law contains instructions about how to set up the tabernacle, which is the tent of God. It's where the sacrifices will be offered. It's the center of the the Jewish worship of God. And it's this place here where God will meet with his people. And the law contains instructions as well about how the people were to live as they waited and in in anticipation of this promised deliverer who would come. Adherence to the law, God tells them, would bring blessing. Rejection of the law would bring cursing. And as they progressively disobeyed the law, God warns them, the Cursings will become greater and greater and greater until finally the final and ultimate curse of the covenant would be exile away from the tabernacle and away from the presence of God. Just as Adam and Eve, when they disobeyed, had been cast out of the garden sanctuary and defrocked as priests, kings and queens, so too the people of God that had been called out from among the nations to be the agents of God's life to the world. They would be sent away from God, cast away from the tabernacle, and also defrocked in their covenant role as priests. Well, the people get off to a rough start right there in the wilderness while they are, Moses is up on the mountain receiving the covenant. They're down at the bottom of the mountain breaking the covenant even before they get it. And their rebellion leads to 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, but at last they arrive at the promised land, which takes us then to the age of the judges. So we get to the age of the judges, and during the age of the judges, these blessings and cursings of the law can be seen very clearly in action. All throughout the the story of the judges, the book of the judges, we see a cycle of sin and then divine punishment and then repentance, and then restoration by God, and then repeat. Sin, punishment, repentance, restoration, and repeat. The people would disobey the covenant. They would fall under its curse. They would cry out for deliverance, and then God would raise up a judge that would come, and he would deliver the people from their enemies. But as soon as the people were delivered from their enemies, they would return to their rebellion, and the cycle would continue. And with each repeat of the cycle, it was like a downward spiral. Things just got worse and worse and worse. And by the end of the age of the judges, the train has completely come off of the tracks. Things are in a very bad way. And the people call out for a king to lead them, which then leads us to the age of the kings. Saul I recall, was appointed the first king of Israel. But his heart, though he had the outward appearance of a king, his heart was not devoted to God. And so David was appointed as a God, or as appointed by God in the place of Saul. David was the greatest of the Jewish kings. His heart was humble 
and he genuinely and earnestly loved God and sought after God. The promise because of this that had been given to Eve that had passed from Eve to Abraham to Isaac to Jacob and to Judah now passes to David, who is himself a descendant of Judah. From David's line, he is told, a great king would arise to fulfill the prophecy that had been given to Eve in Genesis 3. David's life goes on and he has many sons. Eventually his son Solomon succeeds him to the throne. Solomon built a grand and great temple. God had been worshiped in this tabernacle since the days of Moses, but Solomon builds a massive temple in which God can be worshiped. Solomon's reign was the high watermark of the people of God during the age of the kings. But the remainder of the age of the kings, it, it, begins, to, it begins to fall apart, it was full of civil war and strife. The northern tribes, which initially under David and Solomon were loyal to David and Solomon's reign, the northern tribes defected and created their own uh, kingdom separate from the southern tribes that belonged to David's line. And finally, the rebellion gets so bad and the rebellion against each other and the two tribes and the, the war that constantly exists and then the rebellion that the two tribes have against God, it gets so bad that God finally invokes the final curse of the covenant. Exile is coming. The northern tribes are sacked by the Assyrians in 722 BC and they're taken into exile. And then the southern tribes, the heart of the Jewish people in Jerusalem and the temple, the southern tribes are sacked by the Babylonians in 586 and they are taken away into exile and thus begins the age of captivity. So the age of captivity, God tells them, is going to last for 70 years. But while in exile, while captive, God sends prophets to reassure them that he still favors them and loves them and has plans for them. And so some of the prophets that we looked at during the missions month are some of the prophets that God sent to the people during this age of captivity. Micah brought a message uh, about the true nature of godliness, justice, mercy, and humility. Isaiah, one of the major prophets of this time, brought a message of God's coming deliverance and the day when he would crush Leviathan, an ancient name for Satan, and he would put an end to all evil. And then Jeremiah, the other major prophet during the age of captivity, brought a message of God's tender mercy and his ongoing love for his people. And then Nehemiah, finally the the age is over and of captivity is over. And Nehemiah, uh, he is the governor that brings the people back into the land. And he brought a message of humility and the importance of being low before God. The Babylonians, of course, fell to the Persians and Cyrus, the great Persian king, released the Jewish people back to the homeland the priest Ezra oversaw the rebuilding of the temple itself. And then the governor Nehemiah oversaw the rebuilding of the city walls. And the exile was over, but only sort of. Israel was still under the thumb of a foreign mighty power. 
And though the problem of idolatry, the worship of other gods, which had got them into exile to begin with, though that was mostly taken care of and largely rooted out, the hearts of the people are still not entirely right. They're still captive to their old sinful ways. So God sends prophets after the exile, after the days of captivity, to call the people back to him. And that brings us to Malachi, the last book in the Old Testament, and the last of the Old Testament prophets to speak, which brings us then to this season of Advent. So now let's turn our attention to the book of Malachi, this last of the Old Testament prophets before we get to the dawn of the New Testament. The book of Malachi was written sometime around the days of Nehemiah. We're not sure exactly when. It's after the captivity. And uh, it's before, uh, it's either after the walls have just been rebuilt or they're on their way to being rebuilt. Our text that we're going to look at this morning is from Malachi chapter 4, the last chapter of Malachi. But let me just kind of give us a general overview. Malachi is only four chapters long. Let me just give us a general overview of what's going on in Malachi's day. The people, as I noted, have been released from captivity. And they're, they're now taking seriously the problem of idolatry. So we're not going to see again this repeated occurrence of idolatry that we saw all through the age of the judges and all through the age of the kings. And we're not going to see the problem of idolatry again, but that doesn't mean that all is well. The whole book of Malachi, the, the whole book is a prophecy critiquing the people for their lackluster worship. If we were to go back and read through chapters one and three, we would see that the people doubt God's love. They don't honor him as their father or as their Lord and master. They're offering second-rate sacrifices. So when they come to sacrifice and offer their sacrifice to God, they don't bring the best from their flock. They're, they're bringing the sick and the lame and the ones that didn't have any value anyway. The priests themselves have corrupted the worship of the Lord. And the priests are not being faithful uh, to their wives and to their marriage vows. The people are going through the motions of religious uh, devotion to God, but they're cutting the corners and their hearts are not genuinely in it. It's sort of like they're doing just enough to not have to be sent back into exile again. Right? They're not going to commit the same sin of idolatry, but their hearts are not really in it. They're sort of just gesturing at devotion to God, just kind of waving their hands in that direction. And so the, the prophet in chapter four then puts everyone on notice. He's just told them all the ways that they're falling short, right? And so he puts everyone on notice in chapter four. The day of the Lord, the prophet says, is coming. It will be a day of destruction for the wicked, and it will be a day of salvation for the righteous. We've already read this text, but let me read through it again in chapter four. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all the evildoers will be stubble. That day is coming. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall and you shall tread down the wicked for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord. 
And then it's in this context of this rebuke against the people for their lackluster worship, the fact that this day is coming where God is going to to save his own and he's going to punish the wicked and the evildoers. It's in this context that we get into verse 5. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with the decree of utter destruction. Elijah was one of the great prophets of the Old Testament. And the people are told that he is going to be sent in advance of the Lord's coming to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the children's to the fathers, which is to say Elijah is going to come and he's going to straighten out people's hearts. He's going to, he's going to put them in the right spot that they should be in anticipation of the Lord's coming. Well, chapter three, one through four, which we haven't uh, looked at yet, gives us more insight into this coming Elijah. There we read about this, the same kind of basic thing in 3, 1 through 4 that we read about here in chapter 4. So turn our attention, let me turn your tre- attention back there to chapter 3. 3, 1 through, let's read uh, 3, 1 uh, through 5. Here it's a, a repeat many ways of chapter 4. Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment, and I will be swift against the, sor- the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired workers in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. So again, the same basic message. The Lord is coming, and when he's coming, he's going to judge his people, and he will reward those who have been faithful to him, and he's going to punish those who have turned away in wickedness. And in advance of this coming, the Lord will send a messenger. He will send this one to prepare the people for the coming of the Lord. The messenger in 3.1 is the Elijah in verses 4.5, chapter 4.5. And this messenger really is uh, it's a big focal point of the whole prophecy. In fact, the title of the prophecy is messenger. So when I, we, we say that the, the prophecy is Malachi, Malachi chapter 4, verse 5, let's say, right? The term Malachi or Malachi in Hebrew is messenger. So the title of the book, the title of the prophecy is messenger, So Malachi isn't the name of the prophet that is writing the book. Rather, the book is named messenger because it's about this messenger that the Lord is going to send in advance of his coming to prepare the people. So here's the situation going on in the days of the messenger, this prophecy of the messenger. The people have an outward appearance of religious devotion to God, but it's all just outward and it's kind of sketchy and it's half-hearted. And they're kind of just gesturing towards God, but their hearts aren't really in it. 
So the prophet calls out the people's sin and he tells them that the Lord is going to come again to his temple, to his people. And if the people are prepared for his coming, blessings. If they're not ready for his comings, for his coming, there's going to be trouble. And so in order to prepare the people for the Lord's coming, God will send in advance a messenger in the spirit of Elijah who will prepare the people for the Lord's arrival. And so we find ourselves in this similar spot here at Advent, preparing ourselves for the arrival, the coming of the Lord at Christmas. In Matthew chapter eleven fifteen, Jesus tells us the true identity of this Elijah-like messenger who comes to prepare the people for the Lord's arrival. Jesus says this, for all the prophets and the law prophesied until John the Baptist. And if you, if you are willing to accept it, he is the Elijah that is to come. John the Baptist, who was the voice of one crying in the wilderness, the one who came preparing the people for the coming of the Lord Jesus, he is the prophesied messenger from Malachi chapter four, verse five, and Malachi chapter three, verse one. He is the one sent to prepare for the coming of the Lord. And if John the Baptist was the messenger sent in the spirit of Elijah to prepare the people for the coming of the Lord, then that means that Jesus is the Lord who comes. And so he was, and so he is. Jesus is the true fulfillment of the prophecy of the messenger. He is the Lord who comes again to his people. Every season of Advent each year, we're invited in the season of Advent to, to reenact, to relive the gospel story of God's people. Just as the people of God were called to prepare themselves for the coming of the Lord through the prophecy of the messenger, so too we find ourselves in this season of preparation. And just as God sent a messenger to prepare the people for the coming of the Lord Jesus, in that sense, I stand here in our congregation as your pastor in the stead of the Lord's messenger calling us all to prepare our hearts for the coming of the Lord this Christmas. So in that spirit, I ask you, how is your worship and your devotion to the Lord this Advent? Is Jesus the center of your life? Is he the source of your hope and your joy and your peace? Is he the light that guides your path amidst this world's darkness? Is your heart set on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God? Do you find yourself this Advent with only a sketchy, half-hearted, compromised sort of religiosity? Perhaps you find yourself merely gesturing or waving your hand at God. Your heart's not really in it as it relates to the worship of God. 
You're spending your energies vainly trying to find ultimate meaning in the broken and temporary things of this world. Perhaps you are striving for pleasure when you should be striving for peace. Perhaps you are seeking safety when God is calling you to sacrifice. Perhaps you are pursuing relief when God is calling you to pursue repentance. I don't presume to know all the circumstances of your life. Each of us has our own story. We're in a shared story of Advent, but all of us bring our our unique stories to the Advent story. Maybe the Lord has been pressing upon your heart these past number of weeks or this past season of life, some action that he wants you to take. And you know you should take, but you've been, you've been putting off, you've been skirting around. You're not giving your wholehearted devotion and attention to that action. Perhaps there's some aspect of your life that he wants you to address that you just have been looking away from and you haven't been paying attention to. If that's the case, let me encourage you in this Advent season to let go and surrender to the Lord whatever he's asking of you. If there's something he wants you to do and you have been choosing not to do it, let me encourage you to follow through in obedience to the Lord. If there's some area of your life he wants you to turn your attention to and to give some thought about and think about, stop putting it off. Stop distracting yourself. Pay attention to that area of your life. Let this Advent season be a a time when you, in a new way, in a fuller way, prepare your heart for the Lord's arrival at Christmas. Embrace the fun and the family and the Christmas lights. All those things are great, but go deeper into the true meaning and the real meaning of this Christmas season. Use this season of Advent as an opportunity to truly listen to the Lord. Maybe nothing immediately comes to your mind this morning as I'm talking. You're not sure what the Lord wants from you. That's fine. But all the same, let me encourage you to take some time to get alone with God and ask him if there's something he wants you to pay attention to. Ask him if there's something that he wants from you or for you. Ask him what it would mean for you to properly prepare your heart for his arrival this Christmas. Maybe you don't know what the Lord wants from you because you've never asked him. Some of you, I know you have a regular habit of getting alone with God. And I commend that to all of you uh, to get alone with God, even each morning to spend time Uh, meditating on scripture, meditating in prayer, thinking about what God would want from you, listening to his voice in your life. But I'm sure that many of you do not, or maybe those moments are too few and far between. This season of preparation calls all of us into those moments of stillness before the Lord to prepare our hearts for the Lord's coming. This is for everybody. This is for students. Those of you that are watching who are students, you're not too young to ask God what he wants for you and from you, what he would want to say to you. Maybe you're new to the Christian faith and you don't have a practice of listening to the Lord. Let me encourage you to begin that practice. 
Those of you that are long timers, perhaps you have had this practice, but uh, maybe now it's a new time to listen more intently to what God has to say, or perhaps you've fallen out of practice of listening to the Lord. Perhaps some of you are considering becoming a Christian. You're not even yet a Christian. Whether you're new to the Christian faith or a long-term or whatever the case might be, let me encourage you to mark a place this Advent. Mark a place on your calendar. Don't just say it's a good idea. Mark a place on your calendar where you're going to set aside some time to get alone with the Lord and to ask him what you need to do to prepare your heart for his coming. Maybe you already know the answer. Then set aside some time to do business with him and to commit to doing that thing that he wants from you. Take a drive alone, perhaps. Take a walk through the forest preserve alone. Get up early before everyone else in the house is up where you can spend some time reading your Bible. Maybe you say, I don't even know what to read in my Bible. Read the, read the prophecy of the messenger. And that, that prophecy was given to prepare people literally for the coming of Jesus. That's why we go back to it here in Advent. Right? So read through the prophecy of Malachi and see if the Lord maybe stirs your heart, that puts his finger on something in your life and says, this is a thing I want you to pay attention to as you prepare for my coming this Christmas. Maybe journal a little bit. Write out your thoughts, write out your prayers. Maybe just quiet your mind and ask God if there's something he wants to speak into your life. Jesus came into the world to bring us life true and endless life. Malachi 4, 1 and 2 speaks of the contrast between those who prepare themselves for Christ's coming and those who do not. Those who are not prepared, says the Lord, will have neither root nor branch. Everything gets burned up. Everything gets burned up if we try to put our, our hope and our and our safety and our refuge in something other than the Lord. It all gets burned up and we be left with neither root nor branch. But for those who place their hope in God, in God, for those who place their faith in Christ, the son of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings and they go out leaping like calves from the stall. Do you want joy in your life this Christmas? Do you want healing from the hurts of sin, whether your own sin or the sins of others done to you? It's only when we surrender ourselves wholly to Jesus, when we prepare ourselves for his arrival in our lives, that we know this life. Don't just go through the motions this Advent. Don't just gesture at God this Advent. Prepare your heart for the coming of the Lord so that his arrival this year at Christmas season will be a rich and true blessing in your life. Let's pray. Father, thank you for sending Jesus and uh, he is the hope and the light of the world. I pray for each of us as we prepare afresh in a new way for his coming. I pray that you would you would speak into our lives the things that you want us uh, to know. And I pray, Lord, that you would give us a capacity and a willingness to calm ourselves, to still ourselves, 
to listen to your voice as you want to speak to us. So I pray for the folks this morning that are listening, Lord. I pray that you would take the desire that they have and translate that into action, the desire that they have to still themselves before you. Help them to to find a time on their calendar, mark it out, and plan to get alone with you, to let you speak into their lives. And Lord, the things that you want to say to us, I pray that you would say to us. You would pull all of us together into this story of Christ's redemption in fresh new ways this season of Advent. We love you. We thank you that you have sent Christ. We thank you even in this story of the Bible that we have been telling that we are finally now here at this moment when the promised son of Eve is about to appear and he is to bring with him healing so that we can skip with joy like calves being released from the stalls. God, help us to enter into the joy that comes through the coming of Christ. In his name we pray, amen.